Okay, this morning, we're going to continue uh, in our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And yes, last week, we begun at the end of chapter four, and we covered one beatitude. So today, we're going to try to get through at least two or three. Um, so this week, when we talk about blessed deficiency, uh, kind of an oxymoron, maybe a contradictory term. I hope it's very clear by the end of this message. The Beatitudes we learned last week, it's a Latin word that simply just means blessed or um, blessings. Um, And I want us to see this morning that the Beatitudes are a consequence of character, similar to the fruit of the Spirit, Um, outward evidence of inward realities. Because if you've been in the church for some time, you've either heard the Beatitudes Um, as either some perfect standard that doesn't apply to Christians or just simply surface level moralistic teachings. Um, But Jesus always had eternity in mind. Jesus always took concepts that we were familiar with and brought these grand eternal truths out of them. So the Beatitudes, trying to think, how do I describe what the Beatitudes are? And so with me, it always has to go back to food. Um, I think about picking out a watermelon. Okay, where is he going with this? What does a watermelon have to do with the attitudes, right? I was trying to think of what are the things that only, um, that you can only tell their inward character by their outward state. We don't, we don't check, you know, many other fruits that this, this way, right? A watermelon, we could tell the darker the skin is, the more sweet it's become inside. And if you, if you know to look closely, you look underneath and there's that, that white spot at the, at the bottom, you know it's been sitting out in the field for a while and it's got even, even sweeter. And so the Beatitudes plus the fruit of the Spirit are kind of like that, where if you know what to look for, the outward signs, you know what the in, inward condition is. There's a sweetness inside when it's, when it's ripe, when it's come to full fruition. Um, so as we walk through the Beatitudes this morning, I really hope you see that this is the character and the heart of the believer. This is not a recipe for salvation. This is an outflowing of who we are, transformed by the Holy Spirit, a work of grace. Let's pray, let's read through our text, and let's walk through uh, the next several Beatitudes, please. Heavenly Fathers, we open up your word this morning. As we come before you as disciples, learners, students, wanting to know you and to know you well, to be transformed daily by the truths of the gospel, to have our minds and our hearts renewed so our feet walk in accordance with your will. I pray that this morning that this text would come alive to us in a way that it maybe has not before, that The truths of the kingdom of heaven are so much more vivid, so much more convicting than we may have thought. But that we, the end of this message, would be more firmly rooted and more assured of who you are, who the rock of our salvation is. We pray these things in Jesus' name. So we're going to read verses uh, 3 through 6 for me. So we're in Matthew chapter 5, beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. This is how Jesus chooses to start this teaching. 
Matthew 5, starting in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Amen. So, I love that we get to end with a a food analogy because I got another one. Um, You know, looking at at, at these, I was was struck um, by how Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. You know, the greatest known sermon ever. Probably the most um, radical thing that many of these Jews had ever heard. That the kingdom is inherited by the lowly. That the, the countenance of the, the follower of Christ, the countenance of God's child, is not the arrogant and the self-righteous, but the poor and the lowly. Because I think many times Christianity is taught like there's a recipe for salvation. If you're poor in spirit, then you'll, inter- then you'll inherit the kingdom of God. You must be humble first. You must mourn first. You must hunger and thirst for righteousness first. But this isn't the recipe for salvation. You know, the, the, the recipe is kind of, I'm behind the scenes. I want to be the cook. I'm putting this formula together. What are the ABCs I need to go through before I can inherit the kingdom of God? This is not the recipe. This is the taste, the smell, the sights, and the sounds of the feast. This is an outpouring of the work of grace in the life of a believer. You know, we always put ourselves in the role of the cook, but in the kingdom of God, we're the recipient of the feast. And the recipients of the feast, if you remember Jesus' parable, it wasn't the influential and the rich who were invited and had better things to do, but it was the lowly. It was those on the street and the highways and the byways who were, who were, were, were brought in, those poor in spirit. And this is what Christians are to look like. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones, he calls this a disposition produced by grace. This is not the recipe for, but this is the result of the work of grace in the life of a believer. So when we see blessed are the poor in spirit, we see Jesus. Jesus was poor in spirit. He didn't come to usher in this military kingdom. He came quietly. When he was beaten, he didn't lash back. He took the beatings. He even asked for forgiveness for those who put him on the cross. Jesus mourned the death of Lazarus and saw the effect that death had on the ones he loved. Jesus was meek. He was, he was, he was humble. Jesus didn't have to go around telling everyone how great he was. It was evident by his character. He also hungered and thirsted after righteousness. Jesus sought his father day after day. If anyone knew the will of God, if anyone knew righteousness, it was our righteous mediator who we talked about earlier in the catechism. But Jesus sought his father. He prayed over and over again. 
that communion with his father, that connection with righteousness as a part of his daily walk. So let's recap. Last week we looked at poor in spirit. And so we said that if there was a thesis statement to all of the Sermon on the Mount, it would be 5-3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's where we need to start. This spiritual poverty, as D.A. Carson calls it, that we have nothing to offer before God. We are dependent on Christ for all things. And I want you to see as we go through in these next couple sections that is the attribute of the believer first, the poor in spirit, before the action. It is the morning. So it is flowing out of an attribute, flowing out of the character of a believer that produces actions in the believer. So let's talk about this radical statement of poor in spirit. In our culture, we hate the word poor. It has only negative connotations. Um, we don't like the idea of poverty at all. You know, we, we, we think everyone deserves a certain X, Y, or Z. Um, and in our minds, we think we can alleviate poverty by human means. But Jesus uses poverty in a positive way, that blessed are the poor in spirit. I mean, how radical is this? You know, and I want to ask, in the church, are we more concerned with taking people out of financial poverty or leading them to spiritual poverty? Because Jesus recognized you must die to yourself first before you can live in me. You must be poor spiritually before you can inherit eternal riches. Because from the, from the perspective of a believer, we more concerned with financial security or eternal security. And this should threaten all of our worldviews a little bit because all of us put way too much emphasis on our financial state than we should. Jesus talked about money a lot, but it was never on the surface. It was always where are we putting our desire? What are we focusing our heart on? And so we see the poor in spirit throughout Scripture. We see from the very beginning, those who found favor in God's sight were those like Noah, who was humble. Those like Abraham, who was scared of everything. Those like Moses, who's the reluctant hero. On and on, we see all these anti-heroes. God didn't use the arrogant and the proud like Pharaoh. He chose the unlikely. Those who were broken and humble before God. They had a lot of fears, but they feared God above all else. And even in the New Testament, we see the arrogant, Peter and Paul, both very arrogant until they were transformed by the gospel. Until the Holy Spirit convicted them and made them a product of grace. Then they became poor in spirit. And each one of us here who's a follower of Christ knows the difference. I know what it's like to be arrogant. I know what it's like to want to trust in myself. To be haughty in my own abilities. To not be poor and broken before God. But I also know what it's like after being poor and broken before God. You realize that spiritual poverty 
that I have nothing to offer at the feet of the creator of the universe, there is, the most, there is more blessings than anything we could ever achieve on our own. And only there are there blessings. And we know this is impossible without grace. And this is opposed to every other religion on the planet. Because every other religion on the planet has a God who wants you to offer sacrifices in front of them. Do these ritualistic desires, conquer for me, bring me, do for me. But the creator of heaven and earth, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, wants the poor in spirit. Those who mourn, those who are humble, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. How radical is that? Those who are deficient in themselves, but are blessed when they're filled with Christ. So out of the attribute, we see the action. Those who are poor in spirit mourn and they will be comforted. This is even more radical in the eyes of the world, right? Blessed are those who mourn. But this is a natural transition from poverty to mourning. And if we're honest with ourselves, our tendency in most of my life, I read this passage as mourning. Why would Jesus want me to mourn? Jesus only wants good things for me, right? He does. But we connect the mourning with the things that make us mourn. We think about death. We think about those we've lost, the things we've, we've suffered, those things in our lives that break us. We wonder, why does Jesus encourage something that seems so sad? Well, first of all, those who mourn, they care about others. They care about things beyond themselves. They're saddened by the sin, the death, and the disappointment in this world. Jesus wept, shortest verse in the Bible, but spoke volumes that the incarnate Son of God shed a tear because the people he loved were shedding tears. He mourned right along with us. Heart for others mourns when they mourn. A loving heart and a contrite spirit will be comforted. But Jesus, like we sung earlier, was that man of sorrows. He knew true mourning. Because he mourned over our sin. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he mourned over our sin to the point of blood coming out of his forehead. Isaiah 53 goes through what he went through for our sin. That man of sorrows pierced for our transgressions, took the weight of our sin upon him. Our Savior mourned for our sin and took it so we don't have to. This is opposed to the world. The, po- the world doesn't mourn in its sin, doesn't recognize its brokenness and its poverty before God. The world either likes to fix its problems or likes to medicate them, especially in our society. We love to drink away the pain. We love to take another pill. We need to eat, shop, gossip, whatever we, 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 we run to whenever we're strucken with our own poverty before God, our own sin. And we do anything to avoid this discomfort. 
But Scripture is very clear. In this life, you will have trials. And sadly, Jesus is kind of treated like a genie. We will rub him the right way, and maybe he'll grant our wishes. Maybe he'll pull, pull me out of this, this situation. But we're to lean into him. We're to recognize our dependency on him. And as we saw in Titus in our previous series, that we're to be sober-minded. We're not to rely on the medications and the distractions of the world. We're to lean into our Savior. He is our rock. He is our refuge. Not Johnny Walker or Oxycodone. And I want you to see this. This is such a poignant passage. If you keep your finger in Matthew for me and turn over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to read a few verses. And I want to explain this as we go. Um, because Paul, as often he does... He so poignantly puts into theological terms what Jesus uses very sometimes um, in his in his parables. Jesus doesn't always give us the satisfying answer. But Paul is not afraid to be blunt <laughs> and hit things over the head. So if you turn to Second Corinthians chapter seven, starting in verse eight. So think about this that. 2 Corinthians is in response to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, we see probably the most dysfunctional church in all, definitely the dysfunctional church in all of the New Testament, but maybe throughout history. They had sexual issues. They had greed issues. They had idolatry issues. But 2 Corinthians is written after the issues were addressed in 1 Corinthians, and Paul hears back word of their growth. So listen to what Paul says about the effect that his scathing letter of 1 Corinthians had in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Paul went right after the sin. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. He didn't want to hurt his brothers, but he knew that he needed to break them down. He needed them to be poor in spirit, not to be haughty in themselves for their own good. Verse 9. But as it goes, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Those are the poor in spirit. Those are the ones who mourn, who feel a godly grief so that they suffer no real loss. It's only a temporary loss. He goes on, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Grief is good if it leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Jesus is not talking about mourning for the sake of mourning, wearing, wearing black and, and beating yourself up. This is mourning at your own sin and repenting and turning to Christ. For we see that earnestness, this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that, that in your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. Paul addressed the sins of the church, reminded them of their brokenness before God, and taught them about godly grief. 
temporary sorrow that leads to eternal riches. Because we should be uncomfortable in our sin. We should mourn at loss and death and pain. But look to our comfort in Christ. I love this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. And of course, he can say it better than I ever could. So on his sermons, which they turned into a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, this is what he has to say about those who mourn. I want to read this. I want to read it slowly. Uh, but it, it so poignantly addresses everything I'm trying to say. Um, so he says, But what hope has the man who does not believe these things? What hope is the man who is not a Christian? Look at your world. Now think about this. He wrote this 50 years ago. Read your newspaper. What can you bank upon? 50 years ago, they used to bank on the fact that man was rapidly improving and getting better. You can't do that now. You can't bank on education. You can't bank on the United Nations any more than you could bank on the League of Nations. All that has been tried and failed. What hope is there for the world? There's none. There is no comfort for the world now. But for the Christian man who mourns because of sin and because of the state of the world, there is this comfort. The comfort of the blessed hope. The glory that yet remains. So that even here, though he is groaning, he is happy at the same time because of the hope that is set before him. There is this ultimate hope in eternity. In that eternal state where we will be wholly and entirely blessed. There will be nothing to mar life, nothing to detract from it, nothing to spoil it. Sorrow and sighing shall be no more. All tears shall be wiped away and we shall bask forever and ever in eternal sunshine and experience joy and bliss and glory unmixed and unspoiled. Happy are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. How true this is. Unless we know it, we are not a Christian. If we are a Christian, we do know it. This joy of sins forgiven and the knowledge of it, the joy of reconciliation, the joy of knowing that God takes us back when we have fallen away from him, the joy and contemplation of the glory that is set before us, the joy that comes from anticipation of the eternal state. Joy in mourning, blessing out of sorrow, eternal perspective instead of brief grieving. Let's continue. Verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek is not a word we use in our present vernacular. Um, something that we've always learned this as meek. And meek doesn't have an exact translation. Uh, it, it could be gentle, it could be lowly, but for our purposes, humble. Because it is not the arrogant who puts himself forward, you know, it's not the people who exalt themselves. It's less Goliath and more David. Because David was meek. David was humble. But David was not weak. We assume that meekness is weakness. We assume that as Christians, because I'm supposed to be meek, I'm supposed to be gentle, that means I'm supposed to be a doormat. I'm supposed to let the world push me around. I'm supposed to let the world point fingers at me. And I shouldn't respond because Jesus is too nice for that. Now, we can be bold in truth. We can be strong in, the, in our proclamation of the gospel. We can be strong in the face of the world. We can do it humbly. You think 
about the picture of humility and meekness. Think about probably one of the best movies of all time, Princess Bride. One of my favorite characters, Fezzik. Fezzik is the epitome of meekness is not weakness. Fezzik was not weak. If you haven't seen Princess Bride, it's Andre the Giant. I'll give a little spoiler alert. If you haven't seen it, see it. It's, it, it's hilarious. But we see this man who loves poetry, who's, who's, who's kind and gentle, but he loves his friends, and he'll throw guys across the room. And it's funny, but it's true that meekness does not have to be weakness. That gentleness, that humility can't come with, with great strength. Because Jesus struck fear into the demons. He didn't have to scream at them. They knew of his power. They knew of his confidence. They knew where his strength was. It was in the Father. They knew his character. That was his strength. And in being meek, we're to be more like Christ, who came lowly and humbly. The Jews wanted an arrogant leader. They wanted, selfishly, a ruler who would come and make them powerful and have their, their enemies bow before them. Now, that will happen one day. You will bow before Christ. But they wanted it in their time, in their way. They wanted this arrogant coming of God's kingdom. Not the way Jesus came. There is a perfect example of this in Luke chapter 18. Um, if you haven't been here before, you're going to learn to keep your thumb in Matthew, and we're going to flip around a little bit. Uh, so turn to Luke chapter 18 for me. We're going to start at verse 9. Jesus tells this parable that explains this perfectly. The Pharisee and the tax collector, one of my favorite parables. You want to know what it looks like to be poor in spirit, to mourn over your sin, to be meek? Luke 18, 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves and that they were righteous and treated others with, with contempt. Man, that sets the tone. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, idolaters, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So Jesus responds, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That man who Jesus said is justified, he mourns over his sin. He is poor in spirit. Think how amazing this is. It's not the gods who want you to perform for them. Wednesday night, we, we, we started our study on Ephesians. We were talking about the pagan culture of that time and all these these gods who wanted the people to perform for them. I need to do this to appease the gods. The gods of Rome, the gods of Greece, 
the gods of our culture wanted what the Pharisee offered. Do good deeds. Tithe. Outwardly do good things and mock everyone who's not as good as you. But Jesus wants the man who beats his breast at his own sin, who isn't even worthy to lift his eyes up toward heaven. That is the kingdom of God, and it is not of the arrogant. It is not of the haughty. It is not of the self-confident. It is not of the self-sufficient. It is not who those who esteem themselves, but is those who are Christ-dependent and Christ-sufficient, and those who esteem Christ above themselves. We become lesser so that he will become greater. You know, for the arrogant, these promises seem ridiculous, but for the humble, they are welcome nourishment. I want you to see another passage in uh, Psalm 37, starting in verse 3. This is a picture of the promised inheritance, the promised kingdom, and those who will inherit it. Psalm 37, 4, we're probably familiar with. But we read in context, Jesus is quoting, when he says the meek will inherit the earth, he's quoting Psalm 37. But let's look at this in context. Psalm 37, starting in verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light. And your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. Over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off. But to those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at this place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in the abundant peace. Those who are nourished, true food, true drink, the mercy of God, the grace of God, nothing satisfies like the atoning work of our Savior. Those who trust in the Lord, those who delight in the Lord, they are the ones who will be satisfied. So as we look at verse 6, this is an ongoing action. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It is insatiable. It is voracious. This hunger and this thirst for the things of God, because once you've tasted grace, once you've tasted mercy, everything else pales in comparison. Over and over and over and over again, righteousness and salvation are connected, especially in the Old Testament. Salvation, whenever it's talked about in the Old Testament, they didn't know Christ yet, but Christ was shadowed. We see shadows of him all throughout the Psalms, all throughout the prophets, that righteousness and salvation go hand in hand. And we know now that when Christ died on the cross, he became our righteousness. I want you to see a couple passages here that really bring this to life. If you can turn with with me, do it. If not, I'm only going to read uh, one or two verses in each one. Isaiah 61, 10. 
Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he hath clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and its gardens, uh, causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before the nations. We see salvation and a covering of righteousness to be spoken in the same breath. Romans 1 gives us this, this picture as well. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Again, if you can't follow with me, just listen. I'm just going to read two verses. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Salvation to all who believe, and it is the righteousness of God. But Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 23 tells us exactly what righteousness is. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. This is prefiguring Christ. This is a shadow of Christ. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch with a capital B, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Salvation is righteousness. Those who hunger and search after righteousness, after salvation, after the Lord. The transforming of grace, the meek, humble character of the heart will lead you to seek and hunger after the Lord. I could have quoted 30 other scriptures that talk about this parallel between righteousness and salvation. They are the same. Righteousness means right standing before God. You cannot be saved until you are pure, purified before him. You must be anointed with the blood of the Savior. That perfect blood that only can make us pure before our Savior. Because for those who are united with Christ through his death and resurrection, they've been saved by his grace. You've tasted and you've seen that it is good. And you continue to hunger and thirst for what satisfies Jesus uses this language of cravings. They hunger and thirst over and over. He knows how we feel about these things. Our God is the God of milk and honey who promised these things to his people. They know what it's like to have that craving for a donut or the people I know who have cravings for Coca-Cola, which I don't understand, but it gets on their mind and they can't, they, they, they can't get it off. You know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about another great movie that kind of exemplified this um charlie and the chocolate factory the good one not the new one um the one where you see all these kids who you know that 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 saying we just throw away you are what you eat but i was i was thinking through this 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 week that we are what we eat if we're hungering and thirsting after righteousness we, we will exemplify those things but just like the kids in the movie Augustus Gloop 
who he became what, 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 what he wanted. He wanted to eat and eat and eat. We know what happened to him. Violet Beauregard, who um, her namesake turned blue because she was always chewing gum and, and, and chews this, this gum. And I'm hoping I'm not giving too much away, but hopefully you've, you've seen it. But, you know, time and time again in this movie, these kids who are self-focused, who are feeding themselves for their own desires, who are only caught up in themselves, become what they really want. Veruca Salt and the Bad Nut, Mikey TV, lost in, in TV. They became what they eat. They were what they eat. But righteous people, those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are humble before God, they eat the bread you will never hunger again. And the water where you will never thirst again. You thirst after things that feed you eternally. We are what we eat. So what are you hungering and thirsting after? Show me what your heart desires. Show me the things that you want and desire and I'll show you what you value. I'll show you what you worship. Because the worldly person thirsts after his own fleshly desires and his own selfish comforts as he should. Might as well be consistent. If you're living for yourself, you might as well go for it. Like Luther said, if you're going to sin, sin boldly. But the follower of Christ who's poor in spirit hungers and thirsts after righteousness, after his Lord, after his Savior, as he should. And we, if we are followers of Christ, we should be consistent. Not self-esteemed or self-assured, but Christ-esteeming, Christ-assured, Christ-reliant. Christ dependent. So how do we conclude this morning? Examine yourselves today. Have you experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Do you find yourself poor in spirit, poverty stricken before God with nothing to offer before God but Christ? Do you find yourself mourning over your sin, mourning over death, in pain, in the fallen condition of our state? Do you find yourself humble, meek, gentle, with nothing to boast in except Christ and Him crucified? Do you find yourself hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Or do these things seem out of touch, unreachable, or some high lofty Christian ideal that we're not even supposed to, to seek for. Christ's kingdom is impossible to this world. It is illogical. That's why the world doesn't understand it. I mean, this is foolishness to the world. The poor, the meek, the humble, the, 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 the hungry, the humble, those who mourn, foolish Christians. If your heart is hard and you can't even imagine something that you couldn't achieve on your own, can't put into words something I can't earn, something I can't do. But if we belong to the kingdom of heaven, if Jesus is our Lord and Savior, if Christ reigns in our hearts, in our lives, and we're citizens of heaven, do we live like our hearts have been transformed by the grace of God? Do we live out of that disposition of grace turning dead things into life? Stone into flesh. Are we broken and empty before our Savior? 
or are we full of our own strength and pride? To reflect on those words this morning, because if we are poor in spirit, we are blessed. If we mourn, we are blessed. If we are meek, humble before our God, we are blessed. If we hunger and thirst for the things that please our God, we are blessed. That word means happy. Happy in the best possible sense. Let's rejoice in our condition before our God. Blessing in weakness. Rejoice in our God's strength and not our own. If you're hearing this for the first time, or this still isn't sitting right with you, take this time to come before God and pour out your, your, your heart to Him. And if you know this, but you haven't been living this way, pour out your heart to Him. Repent and believe. Turn godly grief produces comfort, produces joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are gracious and merciful King. You're not a distant God who wants arrogant and self-righteous people. You want the weak, the lowly. We are sheep for a reason, because without you, we would be lost. We would not know how to provide for ourselves. We could not do anything without you. But Lord, I pray that every day we would be transformed more into your image. We will hunger and thirst after the things that bring you honor and bring you praise. And that this morning, this would be a sobering reminder that the happiness that the world offers is fleeting. But true blessedness is for the humble, is for the meek, for those who love the things you love, who have our eyes on eternity and not on our present circumstances. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.